Chernobyl. It was easy for the Soviet Union to control and deny information as to how bad that nuclear accident really was. And the nuclear industry, supported by its crony organizations up to and including the United Nations, continues to support lies about the impact of the radiation released. But then you hear from someone who is on the ground in Bulgaria, working summers on farms that were in the path of the radiation plume released when the nuclear reactor exploded. And she tells you... The next few summers, I actually was working in a farming community, and I heard from local farmers that they have observed strange changes in their baby animals. Every spring, all of them have their baby goats and sheep and cows and horses. And then they had amazingly high number of animals, either stillborn, born with organs and um, limbs that are like multiple numbers, like five legs or two heads or just like missing parts. And they actually killed a baby goat. And that goat had sex organs for female and male. Well, that's a nuclear wake-up call if ever there was one. A direct contradiction of the nuclear industry's claims that radiation does no harm. And here we go with yet another first-person account that testifies to the dangers of that terrible seat that the entire world shares. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we continue our commemoration of the 35th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. This time from Chernobyl survivor Bonnie Kunova. She was a teenager in Bulgaria who was forced by the Soviet Union to stand outside all day in the rain to celebrate May Day, May 1st. And that was the exact same time the radiation releases from Chernobyl were directly overhead. She'll explain the impact of that rainout on her health and that of her family, along with her ongoing perspective as an environmental activist. Then we'll revisit an interview with the late Dr. Janet Sherman. She edited the English version of the cornerstone book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. It was compiled from data from Eastern European medical studies, which have to this day not been translated into English. It's an important book for any personal library on nuclear issues. And at the end, we will let you know how to obtain a free PDF of what is now a very expensive book. And for some more recent news, we'll talk with Nick Lyle, director of the new film False Alarm, about the terrifying 2018 Hawaiian notice of an incoming fully armed missile, This Is Not a Drill. We'll also tell you how you can watch the world premiere online, again, for no cost. 
Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than anyone at the Oscars even thought to mention. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 27, 2021, and here is part two of the Chernobyl 35th anniversary special from a different perspective. The top story this week is out of Japan, where two weeks ago, Japanese officials announced that 1.25 million tons of quote-unquote treated radioactive water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster would be discharged into the Pacific Ocean starting in about two years. Prime Minister Shuga Yoshihide called the planned release, quote, a realistic solution. And now international response has been fast and furious. The United Nations' three special rapporteurs on toxics and human rights, the right to food, and human rights and the environment weighed in on the issue on Thursday, April 22nd, with a joint statement calling Tokyo's decision very concerning. It read in part, The release of one million tons of contaminated water into the marine environment imposes considerable risks to the full enjoyment of human rights of concerned populations in and beyond the borders of Japan, adding that the decision is particularly disappointing as experts believe alternative solutions to the problem are available. While Japanese officials claim that levels of radioactive tritium are low enough to pose no threat to human health, it is both well-known and scientifically proven that the isotope bonds with other molecules in water and can make its way up the food chain and through bioaccumulation, meaning tiny organism is eaten by a slightly larger organism, is eaten by a small fish, is eaten by a larger fish, and ultimately is eaten by human beings, and the input of radioactivity into the internal human environment, to say nothing of other species, is cumulative, this is indeed a serious threat to people and the environment. Japan's government and Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, claims that they are running out of space to store radioactive water and simply must discharge it into the Pacific. But aerial photographs of the area show a large tract of land immediately adjacent to the Fukushima Daiichi property that is empty and too radioactive to be sold or used. There is no explanation as to why that is not being done so that more storage tanks can be installed. The outrage against taking this step is growing most exponentially in those countries nearby that are going to be most deeply affected. An increasing number of Korean residents are expressing fears about the potential harmful impact of Japanese fishery products on their health. A council consisting of superintendents of regional educational offices nationwide warned that it will prohibit the use of Japanese fishery products in school meals if Tokyo pushes ahead with the plan to release the contaminated water. While TEPCO is touting its use of something called the Advanced Liquid Processing Systems, or ALPS, said to be designed to remove radioactive substances from the Fukushima water, according to reports in Korean media, Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority Commissioner Toyoshi Fukita said that some due procedures had been skipped. 
In addition, Greenpeace East Asia has revealed that the ALPS system, quote, does not remove tritium or carbon-14 or other radioactive isotopes such as strontium-90, iodine-129, and cobalt-16. In Seoul, members of a progressive group of university students were seized by police near the Japanese embassy on April 17 as they tried to make their way into the embassy to join a press conference to put forth their criticism of Japan's decision to release the contaminated water. Korea has been among the most proactive governments in the world in banning imports of fishery products from eight Japanese prefectures adjacent to Fukushima since 2013. They also continue to conduct radioactivity checks on products from other parts of Japan. Tokyo's plans have sparked protests from about 30 organizations of Japanese civilians and the Federation of Fishing Cooperatives Association of Japan as well as the fisheries associations of three prefectures. 31 municipalities in Fukushima Prefecture, 70% of the total, have presented complaints and collected more than 450,000 signatures against the initiative. In China, a spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry, Zhao Lijin, said... The Japanese side must honestly face doubts and protests and stop playing dumb on this issue. If the radioactive water from Fukushima is not dangerous, why shouldn't Japan keep it? Indeed. And as if that isn't enough, here's your weekly dose of outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of In response to the protests and international pushback to Japan's plans to release Fukushima's radioactive water into the Pacific, how does the Japanese government choose to try to dispel concerns? With a cute cartoon mascot. Tritty, the snub-nosed tritium mascot, is the latest brain bust by advertising Megalith Dentsu, the company behind all those failed Olympics-promoting schemes. On Tuesday, April 13. Japan's Reconstruction Agency released a flyer and video on its website featuring the harmless little guy to explain that ocean release of water containing tritium is standard practice at nuclear power plants around the world. Yes, but that doesn't make it right, let alone in the quantities that Japan is proposing to release from Fukushima. As Riken Kumatsu, a writer involved in reconstruction activities in Iwake, treated about the character, It makes a mockery of risk communication. The gap between the gravity of the problems we face and the levity of the character is huge. Faced with universal mockery, shaming, and loss of face, Tritty was removed from public view after only 24 hours. But not before screenshots made it infamous around the world for its tone-deaf response to an ongoing nuclear tragedy. And that's why... Japan Reconstruction Agency, and Dentsu Public Relations, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. And of course, a picture of Tritty will be up on our website. Here in the U.S., in New Mexico, 
a coalition of public interest organizations have notified the U.S. Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration, urging a comprehensive review of plans to vastly ramp up production of nuclear bomb cores at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico and the Savannah River site in South Carolina. The groups say this lack of review violates the National Environmental Policy Act and would saddle already burdened communities near the two DOE sites with significant quantities of toxic and radioactive materials. This directly contravenes President Biden's executive order of making environmental justice a part of the mission of every agency. Among the coalition's stated concerns are the hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars on the line, uncertain future radioactive waste disposal that could strand yet more plutonium in South Carolina, and the risk of lethal accidents, fires, radioactive and hazardous waste releases that could harm the predominantly low-income and African-American communities near the Savannah River site and the Pueblo communities and other minority populations living around the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Beata Tsosi, Environmental Health and Justice Program Coordinator for Tewa Women United, commented, It is clear that communities impacted by nuclear colonialism need healing, strength, and restorative justice. We know that the environmental violence our land-based and native peoples, ecologies, and waters continue to endure from nuclear contamination will not end until the harm stops. And Jay Coglin of Nuclear Watch New Mexico commented, Instead of maintaining the safety and reliability of the existing nuclear weapons stockpile, the National Nuclear Security Agency may actually undermine it because all future pit production is for speculative new design nuclear weapons. This is a colossal and unnecessary waste of taxpayers' money on top of already wasted taxpayers' money. If you had questions about the persistence of radioactivity in the environment, new research reveals traces of radioactive fallout from nuclear tests in the 1950s and 1960s can still be found in American honey. Jim Cast, an environmental geochemist at William & Mary University in Williamsburg, Virginia, and lead researcher said, there was a period in which we tested hundreds of nuclear weapons in the environment. That put a blanket of these isotopes into the environment during a very narrow time window. Some of these traces are much fainter than others Cast found out, but only by chance. After giving his students a spring break assignment in 2017, he asked his students to bring back locally sourced foods from wherever they spent the holidays and was shocked to discover that a jar of honey from a North Carolina farmer's market tested 100 times hotter than any of the other foods. Of the 122 honey samples tested, 68 showed detectable traces of the radioactive isotope, a legacy of atmospheric nuclear tests conducted by the United States, the USSR, and other nations during the Cold War era. How sweet it isn't. Two really good articles that we are going to link to on the website the first is from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and it's entitled, Is the U.S. Nuclear Community Prepared for the Extreme Weather Climate Change is Bringing? The short answer is, no! 
The article provides the details to back that up. And esteemed anti-nuclear veteran activist Harvey Wasserman, who's also a terrific journalist, has an article, 80 Ways Nuclear Power is a Catastrophic Failure. 80 bullet points to have handy at all times, especially if you are calling into radio talk shows to have your say about why nuclear is not green. As I said, they'll both be linked on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode 514. In Canada, when does uranium go to school? When BWXT opens its uranium pellet factory in downtown Peterborough, Nogajuanong, an hour and a half north of Toronto, and directly across the street from the Prince of Wales Elementary School. BWXT's existing Toronto uranium pellet factory cooks uranium powder at 1,650 degrees centigrade to form ceramic uranium pellets, in the process releasing radioactive vapor clouds 24-7. The decision to allow nuclear fuel pellet production in the downtown core is being challenged by Citizens Against Radioactive Neighborhoods with help of lawyers from the Canadian Environmental Law Association. Here is the first of this week's featured interviews. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster requires more than a cursory look back. So this week we add to Nuclear Hot Seat's commemoration of its 35th anniversary with a second program. In last week's show, number 513, We heard from author Kate Brown, author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, and evolutionary biologist Timothy Mousseau, who has been doing on-the-ground research in Chernobyl on mutations of plants, insects, and now mammals. This week, a different perspective on Chernobyl, a personal one. We hear from Bonnie Kunova. She was a 15-year-old living in communist Bulgaria when the Chernobyl disaster began. But no one knew about it because the Soviet Union said nothing to its people. The Chernobyl fire, explosions, and radiation release started on April 26. On May 1st, May Day, Bulgarian citizens were required by the Soviet hierarchy to attend all-day celebrations of the communist state in the rain, at the exact time the worst of Chernobyl's radiation was directly overhead. Here, Bonnie Kunova paints the picture of the impact of that radiation rainout and lets us know the result of this devastating experience on herself and her family. We originally spoke for Nuclear Hot Seat number 97 from July 9, 2013. When Chernobyl happened on April 26th of 1986, where were you living? I was living in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria. Bulgaria is a small country in the Balkan Peninsula. And typically on the maps of the Chernobyl fallout, it's uh, uh, covered in gray like it wasn't uh, affected. Unfortunately, the reason for that is because the government never allowed any tests and never any data has been released about the impact. But the impact definitely has been devastating. You were living in Bulgaria. What, if anything, did you learn about Chernobyl when it happened? When it happened, uh, nobody of the ordinary people knew anything about it. It was kept as a deep secret as the communist government at that time felt 
obligated to be loyal to the Soviet Union powers that be, and of course, Soviet Union couldn't do anything wrong or make any mistake. Therefore, there was nothing going on. And uh, not only we weren't told, but when there were some whispers in the air, the government, Bulgarian government, officially went on national TV and declared that there's no problem and we can eat uh, spinach and lettuce and drink milk and be outside. And we actually mandatory, we, I was a uh, teenage girl at that time, were forced to march in a, some communist rally on uh, exactly the same day when there was a, a rain that was dragging down the nuclear uh, hot particles and basically the nuclear rain was raining upon us. How soon after it happened did you start hearing the whispers that something was wrong? Basically, besides occasional whisper, nothing really was declared until the fall of the communism in uh, 1989. So it was three, three years. years and a half, yeah. During that time, were people aware of any changes either in the food or in health or in children? People observed uh, numerous changes. The plants that spring all looked burned and uh, yellow and gray and uh, brown. Some of the um, annual vegetables, especially the most sensitive, like spinach and lettuce I mentioned, were also brown and, and um, dead, some of them. Some of them just um, looking strange. Some of the um, lettuces actually grew huge, like three, four size times bigger than the usual size. The next few summers, I actually was working in a farming community, and I heard from local farmers that they have observed strange changes in their baby animals. Every spring, all of them have their baby goats and sheep and cows and horses, and then they had um, amazingly high number of animals, either stillborn, born with organs and um, limbs that are like multiple numbers, like five legs or two heads or just like missing parts. I actually remember particularly in 1988, I worked a little bit longer, so uh, it happened that my birthday in September was... Uh, I was still working there, and the farmers were so sweet, they wanted to throw a party for me, and they actually killed a baby goat, and that goat had sex organs for female and male. And if that was a novel, that would be foreshadowing of the future problems, because I heard from a scientist that the different creatures have different time of responding to radiation, and uh, more primitive or simple organisms uh, mutate faster, obviously. At that time, I heard from a scientist that they expect the peak in the mutations in humans to occur 10 years after Chernobyl, which was exactly when my son was born. But apparently that even wasn't the, the most dramatic peak because according to the recent statistics, the problems and the mutations continue even in a worse way year after year. So we really don't know when the peak will be. How were babies affected by this? The babies that were born at that time had bone problems, skin problems, uh, respiratory problems. You were talking before, uh, before we did the interview, you mentioned about a child that you knew who was born three days after Chernobyl happened? Yeah, that was my doctor. My son's doctor daughter was born three days after Chernobyl. And even that doctor who was a medical personnel and very intelligent woman wasn't aware of what's going on. So she was exposing her daughter to the son, which is 
traditional for the area. And then her, this is part of the health for giving the baby vitamin yes, especially D. especially that um, winter time in Bulgaria is dark and cold, so you do need that exposure. Yes, her her daughter's bones were literally melted, and she needed support for the rest of her life. Her um, bones after. were melted. Yeah, they she they were so soft that they couldn't support her body ever. And she survived. She survived with normal, uh, otherwise intelligent girl, but um, disabled for for life. Did the government continue to deny that there Absolutely. was anything wrong? Absolutely. The government continued to deny it. There was no comment at all. The food wasn't uh, withheld, so people actually were encouraged to eat uh, food that was definitely contaminated. While later on uh, in the uh, investigation, it turned out that the government itself had deliveries with charter airplanes from New Zealand, special food for their, them and their families, and their families were in underground shelters. But uh, the ordinary people were actually sent to march on the streets for rallies and get all the exposure that was at that time the strongest at its peak. So, no, there was no officially released any information besides the talk among people and um, lots of jokes. Bulgarians like to joke on political topics. Tell me some Chernobyl jokes. Grandson is asking his grandfather, hey, da uh, grandpa, tell me what, uh, what was it in Chernobyl at that time? And the uh, grandfather answers, oh, nothing, nothing much, don't worry about it, and pats his uh, grandson on both of his heads. <laughs> yeah, I know it's bad. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh, but it's... <laughs> so, yeah, the grandson got two heads. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, that's the reality for that area. Uh, if you look at any documentary, you can see children with tumors as big as their heads or organs outside of their bodies. And unfortunately, it doesn't get better. If you look at the data for Russia and Ukraine and all these areas that were affected, uh, still it doesn't get better. Still people have all of these problems. Talk to me about what happened with your son. When I turned uh, 24, I got pregnant. My husband at that time was also a mountaineer and uh, outdoor man, and he was exposed to the Chernobyl radiation even in a closer proximity to the explosion. And I was marching in that communist rally <laughs> that was mandatory, unfortunately. You couldn't sneak out unless you wanted to get in a serious trouble. I was uh, young and healthy. I have no history of genetic uh, diseases in our family. Same with my ex-husband. But um, our son was born and immediately diagnosed with Down syndrome. And uh, the day he was born, uh, there were 42 or 3 kids in the hospital. Three out of them were Down syndrome kids, which is extremely high ratio of Down syndrome for the normal population. Right, the normal percentage is those, what? Those are all young mothers. For that age group, the normal uh, ratio, I believe, is one in 3,000 something like that. And Bulgaria used to be a clean country and actually was pretty low genetic uh, diseases. At that time, uh, with my son, there were three more babies in the hospital uh, with Down syndrome. Uh, that was a huge tragedy for all these uh, people because on the top of it, the country wasn't prepared. There was no such frequency of problems, mental problems or genetic problems. So there was no system of support, uh, no services available for them. And uh, these kids were really, really victims. So what is it that has shown up in your son? Well, uh, he's uh, severely mentally retarded. He has heart defect and uh, other 
problems that are related to the uh, genetic disease, like weak muscles, weak joints, uh, blood problems, stomach problems. Also, I'm diagnosed with thyroid problems, immune problems. Once in a while, tumors here and there, which are pretty benign, but all of this actually, according to doctors, is linked to the exposure to radiation because there's no history of any of it uh, in our family. And I'm a pretty healthy person. I also was uh, mountaineer. So all of these problems actually, uh, according to the uh, medical authorities, are linked to Chernobyl. And actually my son officially is labeled as environmental case. By the governmental workers who actually try to get support for these kids. Even before I got a son with Down syndrome, I was very dedicated to the environmental movement and I was very aware that uh, we are not capable of controlling and using safely the nuclear power. So I was actually a fighter against it. We actually did um, protests every, every springtime, every 26th of um, April. We were giving black ribbons to the pedestrians in Sofia and we were doing protests. And there was actually pretty fun uh, rallies in which everybody was uh, dressed as a mutant. <laughs> so we were having fun with that. <laughs> but given a chance to tell people one thing, I want to uh, say this. I don't want to leave a message uh, about story about some strange girl with a Slavic accent who had an unpleasant experience with the bad communist government, got screwed, her son got screwed, and then she somehow managed to come to America and get a little bit better help for her and her son. That's all great, but that's not really what I want to say. The communist governments were evil and they were capable of lying, but they are not the only uh, government capable of lying. I'm afraid that in any situation powers that be serve their buddies, the people with power and money. And if big money is involved in uh, developing uh, nuclear power in any country, the governments will cover for them, and they did cover, as we saw in the case of Fukushima. The information wasn't uh, released. We still don't know what kind of impact that horrible event will have. I feel for the Japanese people, and I know that it has had impact on America, too. So since uh, Chernobyl, in uh, my country and in the whole area, the um, percentage of genetic diseases, stillborn babies, miscarriages, cancer, tumors, uh, respiratory problems, thyroid problems, bone and blood problems are skyrocketing. It's epidemic. I talked to the director of the biggest, most uh, specialized hospital in Bulgaria who happened to be somebody I know. She said that miscarriages and genetic illnesses in Bulgaria are almost like considered like a flu, like something that almost everybody experiences, and this is not normal, and it's not okay, and it's not easy. I myself actually lost a baby uh, a few years ago, and this is a huge huge, huge uh, tragedy that uh, some people maybe never recover from. And we shouldn't uh, take it lightly. We shouldn't say, oh, that's the price for using nuclear energy. There are other uh, alternative sources of energy. We really don't need to play with that extremely dangerous energy that we really don't know how to control and how to store the waste. And it's just really something that we should leave alone. What are your thoughts about what's facing Japan as a result of Fukushima? I'm seriously concerned about what will happen in five or ten years with the kids who will be born at that time after Fukushima, but kids from parents who have been in the area or the little ones who already have been exposed. Are they going to develop all kinds of cancers, tumors, headaches, bleeding, 
We really don't know. And uh, I feel for them and I worry about them. And I don't think that that's how we should treat our future, our kids. If, if, even if we are ready to play Russian roulette or Japanese roulette, <laughs> we should give the chance to our kids to actually have safe environment and enjoy their lives without having to deal with tumors and cancers and, and fear and pain and disabilities. Because even one kid growing with tumor or, like in case of my son, intellectual disability and um, heart defects, has huge impact. Their life is so much tougher and so much opportunities are taken away. It's like a curse upon them. They're, they're really robbed. This is a robbery officially imposed to them. And even one kid is too much if we're talking about impact of such a negative event. What about million kids? What about million people? I've been told that most of the people who participated in the original cleanup are already gone. Cleanup of Chernobyl. Cleanup of Chernobyl. What about the cleanup in uh, Fukushima? I know that they basically sent people who were sent on a suicidal mission, people who knew that basically that's the end of them and maybe they were really willing to sacrifice themselves. But why do we need to pay that price? We have alternatives. We have alternative sources of energy. We can learn to use less energy. We can learn to be less of a consumerist. There's options. We don't have to be slaves to the nuclear power and sell ourselves so cheap to such a dangerous business. That was Chernobyl survivor Bonnie Kunova. We'll have this week's second featured interview to commemorate Chernobyl's 35th anniversary in just a moment. But first, Chernobyl again takes the lead this week. And while industry, government, and media try to cast this disaster as part of the past, in truth, None of our shared nuclear nightmares ever goes away. Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Church Rock, Hanford, nuclear weapons, uranium mining, endless forever radioactive waste. Nuclear is a mess. And it's a planetary mess. And that's because the radioactivity that results from all of it is invisible, not generally understood by the public, and everywhere. Now, because you don't see it, it's easy for the world to go, nuclear, meh, I have other problems to deal with, and turn away, which is a big mistake, because ignorance will not eliminate the deadly dangers of radioactivity. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week with more reach, range, and nuanced specificity than mainstream media ever provides. This program is the one place you can count on to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving truth about nuclear dangers in all their varied forms. But to keep the show running, we need your help. So help us keep getting the word out by providing a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help with a donation of any size. We also have a link there so you can send us a monthly $5. Now, that's the same as a cup of coffee. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee every month. I promise it won't go to Starbucks. It will go towards the show and our social media presence. Whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's second featured interview. The late Dr. Janet Sherman 
was an important voice against toxins in our environment, and especially nuclear. She did original research, wrote papers, and helped to make difficult truths be known. Her most remarkable and enduring work was editing the English-language translation of the groundbreaking cornerstone work Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. It was written originally in Russian by Dr. Alexei Yablokov, Vasily B. Nesterenko, and Alexei V. Nesterenko. For those of you who may not be familiar with his background, Dr. Yablokov was advisor to Presidents Boris Yeltsin and Mikhail Gorbachev, founded Greenpeace USSR, and is considered the grandfather of Russian environmentalism. Dr. Sherman was an early and enthusiastic supporter of Nuclear Hot Seat, and we spoke about this book and how it came about for Nuclear Hot Seat number 97 on April 23, 2013. Dr. Janet Sherman, thank you so much for joining me this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, it's an honor to be here. First of all, my condolences to you on the loss of your friend and colleague, Alexei Yablokov, who was so important to us all. Oh, yes. He was a great human being. How did you first become aware of Alexei Yablokov and his work? I have a, a friend and colleague, anti-nuclear person, was Jay Gould. Now, not that Jay Gould. We're talking about the economist Jay Gould. And he called me and said he had just heard Alexei speak in New York City, and he said, you've got to hear him. And Alexei was scheduled to speak at the Reagan Center, and I had originally said I would never go in the building, but I went. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) he was there with the Bellona group, and I met him, and I was so impressed. And then I realized that these people did not have a nickel between them, no money at all. So I invited him to dinner, and we became friends. I was very interested in what he was doing, and I had worked for the Atomic Energy Commission back in the 1950s at the University of California, Berkeley. What did you do for them there? I was a a radiological monitor. I marched around with a Geiger counter and an alpha counter to see if things were leaking or anything was spilled. And then I worked for the Navy, U.S. Navy Radiological Laboratory in Hunters Point in San Francisco. And there we did studies on nuclear and radiation burns. It was pretty disgusting research on the animals. And we also got animals that had been radiated at the test site in Nevada. Wow, I had no idea of this aspect of your work, and this points to us having another discussion at another time. Okay. But bringing this back to Alexei Yablokov, what year was it that you first met him, and from that first dinner, how did things progress? I think it was about 2010, but I'm not certain, because we just had dinner, and then we kept in touch by email. And then 2011 is when things really boiled up. He had flown into Washington just to go to a meeting, nothing special. And four days before he flew in was when Fukushima happened. And he was scheduled to stay at my apartment, 
when he got here, he said, they will never clean up Fukushima. And then he was here, and I contacted a couple people, and we had four film crews in my living room interviewing him. Then, this is 2011, right after Fukushima. And he was very, very impressive. At this point, his book had been published in Russia. Is that correct? Right, and he had asked me to edit it. He said, I have no money and I cannot pay you. And somebody had done a machine translation of his book on Chernobyl. And he asked me, would I edit it? And I said, sure. And I figured it would take about four months. Well, it took 14 months. (laughs) (laughs) And this book, of course, is Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. That's right. Now, this is the book that he had originally published in Russia. Tell us a bit of background on how that came about and what it consisted of. He got this book published in in Russia, and there was an offer from somebody at the New York Academy of Sciences to publish it in, in America. But then there was a big hue and cry by the nuclear industry not to publish this book. Absolutely should not see the light of day in English. And what was their objection to the book, if you can bring that forward for the listeners? Well, we shouldn't worry about nuclear power. It's perfectly safe. There's no problems at all with waste or anything like that was their idea. But he did ask me, would I edit it? And I did. And we were able to get it published by the New York Academy of Sciences because they had signed a contract before all this hue and cry came out against it. They only published a few copies. There were not a lot. And then an independent publisher... Oh, mercy, I can't remember his name. In Pennsylvania, published a bunch more, and people could order it. And then Alexei decided to have it put on the Internet so nobody could be without it, and it would be free for anybody who wanted to download it. Give people an idea as to what that content was and is in the book that made the nuclear industry so upset and so adamant about putting it down. Well, you know, we talked about the adverse effects of of radiation. I mean, (laughs) this is not a safe technology. It has, you know, lots of problems with waste and with mining the ore and with all that goes along with radiation. My understanding is that the book compiles results of over 6,000 studies That's right. See, that's the point that people don't understand. This wasn't just some Russian scientist talking about, gee, radiation is bad. He went through the published literature in the Eastern European languages that never appeared in English and compiled over 6,000 of them to come up with the results that he did. (laughs) You're absolutely correct, and it's the effect on the flora, the fauna, the microbiology, uh, the atmosphere, the water, everything. I mean, he really did an unbelievable summary of these 6,000 articles that were published independently, mostly in Russia and the Ukraine, and did not appear before the public. 
Yablokov's conclusion, which was based upon his research, was that 985,000 people, almost a million people, died as a result of the consequences of Chernobyl and the radiation release, most of them from cancer. Yet the World Health Organization officially posited that there were fewer than 50 deaths. Pay no attention to that disaster. Move along with your life. There's no problem there. That is an astonishing discrepancy. You're right. (laughs) In your opinion, what explains that discrepancy? Yablokov was a scientist, and he was a very methodical scientist, and he understood the effects of nuclear radiation, and the industry did not want any stop, any development of nuclear. They really wanted to press forward with more nuclear power plants and say, this is perfectly harmless. Lied. What, if any, consequences did... Professor Yablokov, Dr. Yablokov's face for publishing the book in Russia and then for letting it out in the West in English. Fortunately, he was not imprisoned, as was Nikitin, who was this, the forerunner who published on the effects of the ships and submarines in the Arctic. So Yablokov escaped being imprisoned, but of course he never received a whole lot of support from the government. In terms of an epitaph for Dr. Yablokov, an epitaph for the man, what do you think it should say? I think it should say that he was a supporter of humanity and the environment without exception. Dr. Janet Sherman, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts and remembrances on the passing of Dr. Alexei Yablokov. Well, thank you for caring and doing this program. That was the late Dr. Janet Sherman in an interview recorded on April 23, 2013, for Nuclear Hot Seat number 97. She passed away on November 29, 2019. And as she said of Dr. Yablokov, she was a supporter of humanity and the environment without exception. If you wish to have a copy of the book, Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. It is available in English as a free PDF download, and we will link to that on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 514. Activists, Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Beyond the Bomb has partnered with filmmaker Nick Lyle to present the world premiere of his new documentary, False Alarm. The film investigates the diverse reactions to the surreal and traumatic morning when families, soldiers, tourists, and really every person in Hawaii was forced to confront an unthinkable reality, an incoming nuclear missile. Nick has directed, produced, and edited several award-winning fiction and nonfiction short films. To find out more about this film and the upcoming screening, we spoke on Friday, April 23, 2021. Nick Lyle, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. First of all, congratulations on the completion of your film, False Alarm. Thank you. It has been a labor of love. It was 
a completely independently produced and financed film with some help from friends and a lot of people in the various communities that care a lot about the issues that the film intersects with, who helped turn this into a reality. That and a lot of stay at home during COVID. What is your background as a filmmaker? You know, I started doing videography at a company that I worked for, and that was my first steps into making films. I spent a lot of time making silly short films with friends, learning how to make it by doing it over and over again. Eventually, I got to a point where I wanted to branch out into something that I cared a little bit more about that wasn't just silly, took a little more ownership over my own voice as a filmmaker. And there happened to be this wild and crazy and traumatic event that happened right at that time. What attracted you to the story of the Hawaiian nuclear false alarm as the topic for this film? I think the draw of it is this undeniable ability to take something so abstract, like nuclear weapons, like living under the shadow and the fear of nuclear weapons, and bringing it down to a level where it feels really real and visceral. Happily, you know, nothing really happened out of this in terms of an actual weapon or attack. But the contradictions between the reality of how it felt for those people who were in that situation for 38 minutes and the falseness of what actually happened, I thought there had to be a story there. There had to be some real conflict inside of each person who experienced that with their own feelings. How did you find the people you interviewed for the film? First, I started looking for people who had already shared their stories, people who were motivated to share something about either lessons they learned, maybe they were just interviewed by a reporter. Once I started getting into the pre-production aspects, putting together kind of a story, what I thought was there, doing research on what actually happened, I found more and more people that knew somebody or knew somebody who knew somebody who had been through this. And because it was this event that was so memorable for those people, they had told it to their friends once and they said, you know, I think I know somebody who went through that and they would connect me. So I ended up interviewing everybody in about two weeks time. I was in Hawaii for, cause it was totally self-financed. I had that much time to get all my filming done. And so I interviewed everybody there and maybe a quarter of the people I interviewed uh, made it into the final film, but everybody had an impact on it. What was the main thrust of what they told you and what did you find the most surprising? Yeah, that's a great question. The biggest theme was how diverse people's responses were to this event. That kind of surprised me. I thought that everybody would kind of react similarly or at least be pretty afraid when you get a notification on your phone that says incoming nuclear missile, this is not a drill. I would be very scared. And certainly I think everybody felt some level of fear, but a lot of people reacted to that fear in a lot of different ways, whether it was to grab a beer and go down to the beach or to continue golfing, surfing, working. Well, it was Saturday mornings where not too many people were working, go back to sleep. But a lot of the people that I interviewed and a lot of the people that I talked to were really genuinely terrified, texted their loved ones. That was a very common reaction and waited. Nobody knew much else what to do besides take cover and wait. It's a long time to wait. It's 38 minutes. Did you try to talk to any of the officials or representatives of the agencies that were involved in Hawaii 
or from the United States during this time? Yeah, I did a little bit of outreach. Ultimately, the thrust of the story that I was going for was, I think mistakes around nuclear weapons are almost too common. And there's a lot of people who are more expert on those mistakes than I was. And so the part that I was really interested in connecting and putting on film was that human aspect of something so abstract and terrifying. So while I couldn't avoid fully the story of what actually happened, who pushed the button, why did they push the button? I ultimately sidestep it a little bit, maybe a little frustrating for some viewers, because I think there are bigger questions that needed to be asked. I first found out about the film because Beyond the Bomb sent out notification that on Friday, May 7, 2021, at 8 p.m. Eastern time, they are presenting a screening of it. And afterwards, you will be available in a Q&A. How did this connection with Beyond the Bomb come about? I did some outreach to some folks in the community. You don't make a film and hope nobody sees it. So, you know, my primary goal with this is to make sure people see it. And I don't have access to the kinds of audiences who might be interested in seeing this film as much as Beyond the Bomb might. And they also have some really great expertise and a good possibility to take the questions that viewers might be left with after the film or the motivation that they might be left with and turn it into real action, which can be really hard to encounter around something as big and gnarly as nuclear weapons. Now, this is a single screening. Is this going to be the world premiere? It is. This will be the world premiere. So it's an RSVP only screening. It's a suggested donation. So it's accessible to everybody, but obviously if you can afford to make a donation, you should. We are really excited to launch this, to have an audience see it, react to it, share their thoughts and feelings with us about how they receive the film. And, you know, I won't be surprised if a lot of people say false missile alert in Hawaii and maybe get some, some kind of catharsis out of it because a lot of people just never had an opportunity to process this event. I think less so maybe for people who lived in Hawaii and more so for tourists who were just there had this thing happen to them and then go back and they don't, nobody can relate to this thing that happened to them. And they even feel maybe a little ashamed that they feel traumatized about it because it ultimately wasn't real. Yes, but for those 38 minutes, it was very real. Yeah. Now, if people wish to sign up to see the film for its world premiere on May 7th, we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 514 that you can click on and follow to be able to sign up. And please, if you can, pay for a ticket because it's going for a worthy cause. Now, after this first presentation, where does the film go from there? For the next several months, at least, the film will be screening at film festivals across the country. The next opportunity to see it will be at the Wisconsin Film Festival, which will be virtual due to COVID in mid-May. Following that, at the Zeitgeist Festival in LA and SF Docs in the Bay Area, at the Roxy actually in San Francisco. To the extent that COVID allows an in-person screening, which I think a lot of these festivals are unsure about right now, I am excited to attend if I can. And I know that the Wisconsin Film Festival will be virtual and I know they're going to be recording some podcasts and Q and A's with the filmmakers to go along with the films. 
If people wish to follow the progress of the film, do you have a website or a way that they can follow it or a database that they can sign up to to get your email? The film is on Twitter and Instagram at False Alarm Film. And the website is falsealarmfilm.com. And there is a newsletter that you can sign up for to get notified about available screenings in your area or virtually. We're all in the same place right now, and it seems to be on Zoom. That was Nick Lyle, the director of False Alarm. Beyond the Bomb is going to be presenting this film as a free digital presentation on Friday, May 7 at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. This is going to be the world premiere of the film, and there will be a post-screening discussion with the filmmaker. To reserve your digital tickets, which are limited, you can go to beyondthebomb.org or just go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Under this episode, number 514, we'll have a link up there so that you can sign up. More film news. The 10th International Uranium Film Festival from Rio de Janeiro will be up and running from May 20th to 30th. As with everything else these days, access will be free and it will be online. The festival has selected 34 documentaries and movies by 26 filmmakers from 15 countries. In addition to the free online presentations, there will be two live online events to complete the program. We are linked to the entire program, which is quite extensive and very exciting in terms of the films that are going to be shown. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 27, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, asahi.com, commondreams.org, koreatimes.co.kr, marketresearchtelecast.com, kyotonews.net, fairwindsenergyeducation.org, Nuclear Watch New Mexico, South Carolina Environmental Law Project, sciencealert.com, thebulletin.org, bristolpost.co.uk, trentarthur.com, Zach Reuter, Angela Bischoff, and the tools and fools at the totally captured by the nuclear industry, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post. Let's get a conversation going. Now, the easiest way for you to get Nuclear Hot Seat every week is to sign up to get it delivered via email. That way you will get it as soon as it posts. Easy to do. NuclearHotSeat.com is the website, as you know. And then just look for the yellow opt-in box. First name, an email address. There you have it. You will be among the first every week to get Nuclear Hot Seat and everything that we've got in it. Speaking of content, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, that's where you can go to help support us, and know that anything you can do to help, we're really grateful. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that luck 
is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. There you go. That's your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.